0: Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code GIST at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And buy Realty Shares. With Realty Shares, you can invest in professionally vetted residential and commercial real estate projects across the United States. Browse all the investments at no cost once you're qualified, invest as little as $1,000 per transaction, and diversify your portfolio by visiting slash GIST.
2: It's Friday, October 30th, 2015 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So you know this show is a compendium of my interests. I can't help it. Hey, Mike, how do you decide what to do? It's whatever flits across my consciousness. So lately it's been baseball. And I've got to say, if you don't love sports, and you don't love sports because the obstacle is the blowhards talking about sports, the great thing is that there's so many avenues to appreciate sports, be it the Roger Angel piece that is, uh, or pieces that are running in the New Yorker. My favorite thing is... The Baseball Prospectus Podcast called Effectively Wild. It's so good I'd rather listen to the podcast than watch the games. I'm talking like Game 70 of the regular season. In fact, Sam and Ben who do that podcast, and this is back scratching because they quote me on their podcast. The other day, they were talking about that Chobani ad that is ubiquitous throughout the playoffs. And he does note, if you've seen that ad, that the batter who's scooping Chobani, or is it Kobani? Anyway, he gets up to bat and he doesn't even grab a batting helmet. And that just pulls us out out of the ad. Excellent point. See how the Baseball Prospectus podcast works? Well, one of the great places to read about sports and culture, in fact, is Grantland. But now Grantland is dead. Grantland has been killed by ESPN, the child of Bill Simmons, who left ESPN in a snit. So this is sort of like when the boy breaks up with the girl and the girl gets to keep the cat and then out of spite, the girl drowns the cat. I don't know if that happens a lot. I'm sorry I put the girl in that position. Anyway, I think about the great Grantland writers, Rembert Brown and Andy Greenwald and Mark Harris and Zach Lowe. And the thing is, when I think about these writers, they're all brand names by now. They all have Twitter accounts with you know tens of thousands of of followers. They'll, they'll land on their feet, more than land on their feet. They, they'll use the Grantland experience. They'll catapult. We'll follow them elsewhere. But something else is lost with Grantland, something that maybe we can't quite see. So joining me now for a round of one question, one question only, is Josh Levine, who is... I know you have a title, Josh. What is it? The executive editor of Slate and the host of Slate Sports Podcast, Hang Up and Listen. That's a good podcast. That's a good way to experience sports. And here's my one question that I want to ask you. What, maybe through your eyes as an editor, what do you see that we don't and what will you miss about Grantland or what will be missed about Grantland that we don't even realize right now? Because it's not just those writers and some other great writers that I listed.
1: So a lot of people don't understand what editors do. Every day, sometimes you, you know, make a writer's argument more concise. Sometimes you help them come up with a new lead. But I think the most important thing that an editor can do is find great writers. And that's what the editors at Grantland and the editor-in-chief, Bill Simmons, did. They found great writers who had profiles before Grantland and who didn't and brought them all together and allowed them to follow their muse there. You mentioned a lot of, you know, great ones, Zach Lowe and... Wesley Morris, Mark Harris, people like Brian Phillips and Brian Curtis who wrote for Slate, so you know that Grantland had great taste. But that was the thing that really struck me was that this was a writer's
2: website, but it takes great editors to make a writer's website. And beyond just identifying talent, once you put up that flag and once you define yourself as what you are, you become a Petri dish. People will say, oh, that's the style that maybe I wasn't even thinking of writing or I knew I always had it in me. So it sort of creates great writers when it it has a, uh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy or maybe it's a snowball effect, but it's some sort of bad metaphor that a good editor would put a red line through.
1: It's a self-fulfilling snowball. You know, well, I'm going to send that back to you with a comment (laughs) that says that it was a really great start, but it's going to be inspirational. It's going to make you want to do the
2: work to make it the metaphor that it really aspires to be. Josh Levine, his title is, well, I'm just going to say that he's the guy who hosts Hang Up and Listen. That's relevant to my life. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Mike. On the show today, speaking of things that once had great promise that now might be dead, Jeb Bush's political campaign. But first, this is a movie that very well could win Best Picture. That doesn't make it the Best Picture, but it just might be the Best Picture I've seen in 2015. We're going to talk to three journalists who are the real-life inspiration for the new film Spotlight. A bad website is like before Metallica cleaned up and was a hair metal band. Still quality Metallica, but it just didn't look right and was off-putting. Or a politician with a sweaty upper lip and a too-loose tie might have the greatest ideas in the world, you're just not going to listen. Or my eight-year-old, who recently wrote a really good report about an octopus, but the handwriting's just not there. So why let your good ideas be undone, by a bad website, also a bad website that gets in the way of your expressing the ideas. You know what you have, you know what you want to say, you know what you want to sell, you know what you want to convey, and if you spend all your time with some fakakta code or some site that doesn't work, it's frustrating, it gets in the way of expressing what you want to express. So that's why I bring you Squarespace. Squarespace websites look professionally designed, regardless of your skill level coding don't you worry about coding they're intuitive they're easy to use and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year so start your free trial today at squarespace.com when you decide to sign up for squarespace make sure to use the offer code gist to get 10 percent off your first purchase squarespace build it beautiful In 2002, reporters for the Boston Globe broke the story of the pervasive sexual abuse scandal that was countenanced and covered up by the Catholic Church. I will read from the Pulitzer Prize citation. Awarded to the Boston Globe for its courageous, comprehensive coverage of sexual abuse by priests an effort that pierced secrecy, stirred local, national, and international reaction, and produced changes in the Roman Catholic Church. So, that citations from 2003, of course. The ripples from those stories and that scandal continue today. The scandal's been called the worst crisis in the Catholic Church since Reformation. Well, the Globe team that broke the story was named the Spotlight Team, and that's the name of a new movie telling the story of the story of the scandal. Three of the journalists who are in the movie are here with me today we do not we go around so we could do voice recognition and then you say who you are and who plays you in the movie so sasha you go first
3: i'm sasha pfeiffer and i'm played in the movie by rachel mcadams the numbers clearly indicate that there were senior clergy involved
2: i'm mike resendies of
0: the globe spotlight team and i'm played by mark ruffalo i know there's things you cannot tell me but also know there's a story here and i think it's an important story
4: i'm walter robinson i'm played in the film by michael keaton You're an editor for the Spotlight team. I prefer to think of myself as a player coach, but yes.
2: What did you want from this movie? Because the reporting's out there in the paper. Then you did a book called Betrayal, right, about it. So you said what you wanted to say. This is for a different audience. So What did you want the movie to say?
4: We wanted the movie to get the story
2: right, Mm -hmm. and it did. It did. Timelines are accurate.
4: Timelines are accurate. And most especially important to us, how we did the reporting.
0: We, we were looking for two things here. One, this was this was pitched to us as a movie that would sing the praises of investigative journalism. And we were interested in that, particularly because it's a time when investigative journalism is not being funded particularly well. And also, uh, we were told it would be a movie about clergy sex abuse, which it is. And so I think we got what we were promised and what we wanted, which was those two things.
3: But I'll, I'll I'll answer that a little differently. In a way, we wanted nothing. We weren't looking for a movie to be made. We were just approached. I think all of us had skepticism that this would even make an interesting movie that would be palatable to watchers. Who wants to see a movie about priests who abuse children? It's not that. It's a movie about reporting and investigative journalism. And mostly, for me at least, I didn't want to be embarrassed. I didn't want it to be Hollywoodized in a way that made us cringe, and instead they've made this lovely movie really true to reality.
2: In the movie, it's disclosed, I, I assume this is accurate, you're all lapsed Catholics. So when you're covering an institution like The Globe, you're also seasoned journalists, you are not kids, you know that there's a lot of money there, there's probably a lot of corruption there, but is there an extra hurdle? Either that family members still very much believe in the church, or that you don't want it to be true if it's the church. Is there any any, any hurdle there because it is the church?
4: No. You think no. not? Uh, no, in fact, there's the absence of a hurdle in that we all sort of got the church. We knew the church. We grew up in the church. we We understood the culture. We didn't, and we were shocked when we found out how extensive this was, I mean, all we wanted to do was to get the story and get the story out.
3: Robbie's right. We understood the deference that the church was given for so many decades in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, which is why people didn't question authority. And we understood that, you know, having having grown up Catholic.
2: But was there a glee in being able to take it down? The time is nigh, or was it... I'm sorry, we have to do this, but we have to do it. No, there was never,
0: there was never any glee at all. In fact, it was uh, sort of with a sense of growing dread and horror that we approached the story and investigated it. Uh, there was no glee at all, far
2: from it, almost, almost the opposite.
4: And no, never a high five. Yeah. Sub- subject
2: matter was too grim, too serious. Well, one thing that the movie does in one of the first scenes, we see kids. We see little kids. I mean, we don't even hear from them. But I just think it's really important to orient us about these are who the victims are. And I wonder if at times as you're reporting the stories, did you get back to that? Talking about kids, because now they're adults, but let's talk about a seven-year-old. We talked a lot about how do you
3: write a story that isn't gratuitous Mm -hmm. and that isn't too difficult to read because of how horrible what happened was but that doesn't sanitize it too much. If you just say a child was molested, that sounds so generic.
2: And in the movie that one of the guys you talked to says that, and you said the words, the phrases, I mean, your character in the movie says that, but does that echo a real conversation? I mean, there's a whole range
3: of things of what molest can mean. A whole range of horrifying things. And we really tried to be sensitive, but also get across how this can change your life forever and stop you in time because of something traumatic that happened you were an adolescent.
0: I was surprised at how many times I had to remind people that Sexually molesting a child is not a mistake. You know, these are crimes we're talking about. This is illegal. This is rape. And so I think the terminology is really important. And when we did interviews, it it was always trying to keep in mind. uh, I remember one
4: specific, an 87-year-old man called from Biddeford, Maine, to tell me, the first person he'd ever told, that when he was 12 years old in 1926, he was abused by a priest and to try to remember you're not talking to an 87-year-old man per se you're talking to someone who was 12 once when his life was essentially ruined
2: right and there's a scene in the movie where your character is talking to the guy who was saying i was a 12-year-old kid at the time right. and my the ice cream ran down my arm that's
0: right real detail real detail, absolute real detail. Almost that whole interview is verbatim. And I got to tell you, for me, there's a line in that scene that is particularly chilling. And it's the line where the lawyer, Mitchell Garabedian, says, this is one of the lucky ones. And Mark Ruffalo says, what do you mean? And the lawyer says, he's still alive. And the reason it's so chilling is because that particular
2: individual, Patrick McSorley, is no longer alive. Well, there was also a shot. It wasn't gratuitous, but you couldn't help but notice it of the track marks on his arms. Yes. yeah. Patrick had a drug problem.
3: When we were reporting this story, I had gone to a retirement home to meet an older priest who someone had advised that I talked to. And we were talking about Father John Gagan, who they called Jack. I'll never forget this priest saying to me, we all knew that Jack fooled around with little boys. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, what kind of euphemism is fooled around with little boys? I mean, that, kids got raped. You know, another priest once told me we thought we were keeping our celibacy vow if we fooled around with little boys and not little girls. So there was this very twisted, warped thought process going on.
4: Did everyone read Eileen McNamara's column this weekend? It's a column. Uh, Well, apparently, this priest molested kids in six different parishes over the last 30 years, and the attorney for the victims, Mr. uh...
3: Garabedian.
4: Thanks, Eileen. Mr. Garabedian says Cardinal Law found out about it 15 years ago and did nothing.
1: Yeah, I think that attorney's a bit of a crank, and the church dismissed the claim.
4: Whether Mr. Garabedian is a crank or not, he says he has documents that prove the Cardinal knew. Uh, As I understand it, those documents are under seal. Okay, but the fact remains, a Boston priest abused 80 kids. We have a lawyer who says he can prove law new about it, and we've written all of uh, two stories in the last six months. This strikes me as an essential story to a local paper. I think, at the very least, uh, we have to go through those documents. How would you like to do that? We would go to court. You want to sue the church?
3: For years, media outlets of all kinds across the country wrote about priests who abuse children. Our focus was not so much about priests who abuse children. It's about church officials who cover up for priests who abuse children. It was to look at the system, and that was differentiated what we did. You know, I say
0: that uh, the globe by no means discovered clergy sex abuse. There were scandals all over the country, uh, Louisiana, Texas, and the o- in our own uh, neighboring diocese of Fall River. What we did is we exposed the cover-up, and that had never been done by anyone before. That was our contribution.
3: We didn't feel a deference that prevented us from doing this, although we understood the deference the church was afforded. But there were hurdles, which is the church is not a public organization. You can't ask for its tax returns, look up its SEC filings. You can't send a Freedom of Information Act to request. So it was a real reporting challenge. What do you do when an organization doesn't have any legal right to give you anything, has no interest in giving you anything? And so there were hurdles in that sense, reporting and, hurdles.
4: And, and the other one, quite frankly, is it's unimaginable what was going on and and. All almost all of the cases that had become public were sort of one-offs. You know, one, a priest in one diocese, a priest in another diocese, and the archbishop or the cardinal in each of them always said, this is a single aberrant priest and we've taken care of it. Nobody imagined that there were hundreds, well, actually literally thousands, I think it's over 8,000 American priests, uh, the, the bishops themselves acknowledged, now have been credibly accused over the years. So, The idea that this could be going on particularly, and we all learn a lesson from this, every paper, in such an iconic institution, the most iconic institution in in any community, that this could have been going on, it gave us a, a new perspective, wait a minute, even... Even institutions that we trust and admire so much are run by fallible human beings, and we have to hold them as accountable as we do public agencies.
3: And there was an inadvertent benefit to us not having done this story until 2002, which is that was the very early ages of stories going online. Yeah. And if we had written that story years earlier, a small radius of people in the Boston area would have seen it. People all across the country and the world saw it, and that meant tip calls were coming in nationwide. That We benefited from the, 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 the broad reach the story had because of the
2: web. Now I want to ask you a couple questions about translating reality to Movie screens. I'm going to assume not as many conversations took place in dramatic scenes as they were depicted in the movies. Like right outside of the printing press, or I got an idea. Let's walk through the newsroom and let me share the idea. So you know things have to move a little more in movies.
0: Well, it is a dramatization, but but to give you one example, there's a a wonderful scene where Marty Baron basically gives us a pep talk after Mm -hmm. we're feeling a little chagrined and a little guilty for not breaking the story earlier, and that pep talk actually comes from an email that Marty sent to Robbie and to Ben Bradley Jr. So that was sort of the brilliance of Josh Singer and Tom McCarthy in writing the script. They took written documents and they dramatized
2: what they found. I would also assume that a lot of your conversations although there are a lot of phone conversations perhaps more in-person conversations happen. If you got Stanley Tucci as an actor you might as well get your money's worth. (laughs) Well true? I mean a lot of newspaper
3: life involves sitting at a desk on the telephone. That's not going to sustain a two-hour movie. I mean the (laughs) the golf course scene. The
4: golf course scene uh, never actually (laughs) happened although I I am comfortable on a that golf what, course. You were
2: golfing with a guy who was a lawyer who knew right, and yeah, that and yeah.
4: that was, you know, that person was a composite character, and there was, I think, uh, probably phone calls.
0: Yes, but it's a scene that might have happened. Okay. And I mean, you know, they
3: they show us uh, creating this spreadsheet of essentially bad priests where we're tracking their movements over time. Yes. And they made it look riveting what we were doing. That was a tedious three weeks of work that they turned into an exciting few minutes of movie. I
0: could tell. (laughs) I I could (laughs) tell. One of the things that uh, Josh and Tom, the screenwriters, had going for them is that there were four of us so that uh, they can they could cut quickly from what I was doing to what Sasha was doing to what Robbie was doing, because we were all doing different things. Right. And then cut to what was happening in Marty Baron's office and then cut to what's happening among among uh, Catholics in Boston. So it created a sense of momentum that would probably would not have been possible if there were only one reporter
2: working the story. Do you think your style... So in the movie, you know, Mark Ruffalo plays his character one way and Rachel McAdams another. There are actorly choices. But I got the sense that you, Mike are extremely dogged and won't take no for an answer. And neither will you, Sasha, but you do it in different ways. Like maybe you coax the answer out where you as my, you know, browbeat the answer out of someone. Is that about right with real life? Well, it's been said uh,
0: somewhat to my chagrin that uh, I rear up easily. Yeah. And uh, I was not... I've said it. (laughs) And i got to tell you, I was not uh, eager to have Mark Ruffalo explore this side of my character.
4: If we don't rush to print, somebody else is going to find these letters and butcher this story. Joe Quimby from the Herald was at the freaking courthouse. Mike. What? Why, why are we hesitating? Barron told us to get law. This is law. Barron told us to get the system. We need the full scope. That's the only thing that will put an end to this. So let's take it up to Ben. Let him decide. We'll take it to Ben when I say it's time. It's time, Robbie. It's
0: time! Mark Ruffalo came to my house, and uh, I'd never met him before. He walked in, he sat down, he opened a notebook, he turned on his iPhone, and he started asking me not only how I do my job, but why I do my job. And I thought, wow, this is this is really intrusive. Yeah. And then I thought, well, how many times have I done this to people? And the answer is probably hundreds. And so I thought, uh, this is justice, and settled into it.
3: And when the director and screenwriter came back and forth to Boston for years to interview us, the questions began to get really personal. Like, how did this affect your marriage? And that's when I started to feel uneasy. Like, what what's yeah. this going to be? What, how are we going to be portrayed? There
0: was stuff about your marriage in the movie. Were you comfortable with that? Uh, no, I wasn't comfortable, to be quite honest. Uh, but uh, uh, I think they captured uh, the substance of... Uh, what we did, and there, there wasn't too much of it. So, yeah. but I, just to be honest, uh, I guess, I, and it's, this will not be any surprise to either uh, Josh or Tom or Mark, but uh,
2: I was uncomfortable with it. How? So, how often did you watch them film? A oh, lot. Quite a, a lot. You a were bit. on. You were on set on as advisors
3: set at the Globe and yeah. in Toronto, where they re, where they built a replica Globe newsroom. They yeah. they basically welcomed us as much as we wanted to be there.
0: And they used us. I mean, they would ask our advice. Uh, the actors would ask us to read lines. Yeah. Uh, Josh and Tom would come over and say, hey, would it really, really, really happen this way? So they, they made full use of us, and, and we were happy to be a part of
2: it. What's an and, example of something that showed up in the movie where he said, not like this, like that?
0: They were basic
4: journalism questions. You know, there was one scene where, for instance, Michael should have had uh, a notebook in his hand as he was asking questions, and I said to Tom McCarthy, I said, Michael should have a notebook in his hand, and all of a sudden he did.
3: My late grandmother, who grew up in Southie, South Boston, has a. Uh, she's played by a character in the movie, and for a, for a while, the script kept calling her Gran. We never called her Gran. We called her like most people in Southie, Nana. And finally, I said she just wasn't Gran. She was Nana. They changed the script, so they cared about that kind of detail.
2: That's good. The other two great things about this are female journalist who doesn't sleep with a source. Love that. And Southie, no mobsters. Nope. Thank God. Nope. Hey, look no guns Yeah. no sex Yeah. no car chase yeah. no explosions yeah. pretty remarkable yeah don't worry Ruffalo and Keaton have got you covered on the next ones and leave Shriver he played Sabretooth in a movie too everyone's a superhero <laughs> alright guys thank you so much thank that you. was excellent thank you. If you're looking to diversify your portfolio, real estate might be a place that you look in. And if you're looking at real estate, look at Realty Shares. They're at Realtyshares.com slash gist. Realty Shares is an online real estate investment marketplace that allows accredited investors to invest as little as $1,000 per transaction in residential and commercial real estate projects across the United States. Thousands of investors use the platform to invest in real estate deals that are sourced and vetted by experienced investment professionals. You can browse and invest in minutes all from your computer. Go to RealtyShares.com slash gist to create your free account today. And now the spiel, Jeb's dead? Are we witness to the unjebbing? Big-time conservative pundits like Peggy Noonan are writing things like this. I speak of his candidacy in the past tense, which is rude, though I don't mean it rudely. It's just hard to see how this can work. By hard, I mean, for me, impossible. And the Weekly Standard tweeted, Jeb Bush is cooked. This coverage amounts to the first draft of a funeral notice, and what occasioned it was yet another lackluster Jeb Bush debate performance. He went hard after Marco Rubio. Can
4: I I, I bring something up here? Because I'm a constituent of the senator, and I helped him, and and I expected that he would do constituent service, which means that he shows up to work. Uh, He got endorsed by the Sun-Sentinel because he was the most talented guy in the field. He's a gifted politician. But Marco, when you signed up for this, this was a six-year term. And you should be showing up to work. I mean, literally, the Senate, what is it, like a French work week? You get like three days where you have to show up? You can campaign or just resign and let someone else take the job. There are a lot of people living paycheck to paycheck in Florida as well. They're looking for a senator that will fight for them each and every day.
2: That moment may well be remembered as Jeb Bush's peak in the 2016 race. If the tape had stopped there, it would seem that Jeb aced Marco. But in fact, Marco returns serve quite forcefully.
5: I get to respond, right? 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Well, it's interesting. Over the last few weeks, I've listened to Jeb as he walked around the country and said that you're modeling your campaign after John McCain, that you're going to launch a furious comeback the way he did, by fighting hard in New Hampshire and places like that, carrying your own bag at the airport. You know how many votes John McCain missed when he was carrying out that furious comeback that you're now modeling it under? He wasn't my consultant. Now, Jeb, I don't remember... Well, let me tell you, I don't remember you ever complaining about John McCain's vote record. The only reason why you're doing it now is because we're running for the same position and someone has convinced you that attacking me is going to help you. I've been... Here's the bottom line. I'm not... My campaign is going to be about the future of America. It's not going to be about attacking anyone else on this stage. I will continue to have tremendous admiration and respect for Governor Bush. I'm not running against Governor Bush. I'm not running against anyone on the stage. I'm running for president. Because there is no way we can elect Hillary Clinton to continue the policies of Barack. Hey, thank you
2: so what you're not seeing was Jeb Bush's tight-lipped smile, and the more alpha-seeming Donald Trump injecting himself into the conversation, and the moderators moving on, perhaps signaling the intent of the Republican electorate. The next day, The Washington Post had a front page article titled, Can Jeb Come Back? The key quote was supplied by Matthew Dowd, chief strategist for George W. Bush's 2004 campaign, quote, Jeb has no reservoir of positive support. Reservoir conjures sinking ships. Positive support evokes another form of support, one that was clearly on the candidate's mind in New Hampshire yesterday.
4: It's not on life support. We have the most money. We have the greatest organization. Uh, we're doing fine. In October, late October of four years ago, Herman Cain was the front runner.
2: Now, that last talking point is straight out of a document leaked today. A 112-page PowerPoint presentation that detailed Bush's media strategy his get-out-the-vote strategy. It even had a graph about the online betting markets showing that Jeb is the favorite to get the nomination. Well was the favorite. In the days since the debate, bettors have punished Bush's odds all the way down to 15 to 1 to become president. He now trails Hillary Clinton, Marco Rubio, Bernie Sanders, and Donald Trump. But for some of the dated data, and though its very existence was characterized by the media as another torpedo to the hull, this document actually makes some pretty good points, not that anyone's listening. I'll read page three to you. One, press obsession with process will not determine primary outcome. Two, race will remain fluid for some time because voters have ADD. Three, fundamentals matter. Four, cash matters. Five, discipline matters. I agree with all that. Even the part about voters having ADD. Or I'd say that the A in ADD, attention, is hardly even being paid. Now, saying that out loud might not be smart, but will the voters really punish Bush for it? I mean, they have ADD. Will they even remember? The revelation that Jeb crafted attack lines against Marco Rubio, characterizing him as something of a new Obama, was portrayed as them's fighting words, but it makes total sense. If Jeb Bush didn't do this, he wouldn't be the disciplined candidate with a real sense of the fundamentals that old bullet points four and five talk about. Now, so far, I've been pretty guilty of bullet point number one, process, always obsessed on process. And I do not agree with most of Jeb Bush's fixes for America. In fact, on foreign affairs, I judge his fixes to just be the furthering of foibles, Bush family foibles. He's retrenched with neoconservative advisors after an earlier foray into listening to those who might be less bellicose. But if Jeb Bush leaves the race, The Republicans will be losing the most moderate voice on immigration. The leaked campaign document doesn't directly champion this point. It at best offers a bank shot. It talks about his support among Latinos. And I understand why. This stance really hurts him with conservatives. He's not for a wall. He's for a realistic way into the country. He is the most moderate of all the Republicans. Now, on taxes, every one of his opponents has a plan That would just explode the national debt. They deny it, but listen to a good economist. Economists are saying that every one of these plans raises the debt because they want to cut taxes so badly. Now, Bush wants to cut taxes badly too. Grover Norquist will be pleased. But his tax plan also has what Politico calls the secret hidden inside the Jeb Bush tax plan. Here's the secret. He tackles a giant third rail of politics. Jeb Bush wants to limit itemized deductions. This limiting would raise over a trillion dollars over a decade and would also put a big stake in the heart of the mortgage interest deduction. That is a brave thing. Economists really loathe the mortgage interest deduction. It subsidizes behavior that shouldn't be subsidized, but it's incredibly popular. So, tackling that is something to Jeb Bush's credit. Now, on to education. If you're the kind of person who believes that vouchers and school choice is the or at least a solution for education, there's no better candidate than Jeb Bush. I don't really buy the charter school promise, but Barack Obama does. Maybe you voted for him. Most Republicans really buy it. And Jeb Bush really genuinely buys it. I've seen him hold forth on the issue and his expertise is beyond question. On the other big education issue, Common Core, Bush is the only one who's defending it and it is killing him going to play a tape of the Red State Gathering. This is the conference led by Eric Erickson. This is the one where he disinvited Trump after Trump said bloody wherever about Megyn Kelly. I'm not even going to play Jeb's answer. It was kind of evasive. But I will play you the question to give you a sense of what he's up against.
4: My wife is college educated. We have a daughter who's now going into fourth grade. We appreciate your dedication to education standards but she can't help our third grader with her math homework because of the common core material and so
2: Did you hear the smattering of booze at the end? That his third grader couldn't do math with her mom because her mom doesn't understand it. Common Core is to the right what statues of Confederate generals are to the left, but Bush has not wavered. Hey, maybe he can't waver. I mean, he does do the thing where he says that it should be a state issue, but he owns the fact that he's always backed Common Core. He owns it a lot more than Romney owned Romney Care. I think owning it is hurting Bush. The funny thing about all of this is last night, I was at a meeting in my kid's school where I learned about the array method for solving multiplication. I learned about the bar method for representing a problem. There were a bunch of theretofore slightly confused parents, but we learned the method and now we can help our kids. If the answer to education has to be my kid needs to learn it the exact same way I learned it because that's the only way I know it, then we've learned nothing. If Bush is gone, with him will go, the only voice, certainly on the Republican side, the only voice for real innovation in methods in education. Jeb Bush once famously said that he doesn't want to lose the presidency by winning the nomination, meaning he doesn't want to tack right or pander and thereby put himself in a terrible position in the general election. Well, Jeb Bush, at least on domestic issues, has not pandered, but he hasn't done much to appeal either. And that's it for today's show. Game three starter Andrea Salenzi has a fastball that touches the low hundreds, which doesn't seem like a lot of people, but the important thing is where it touches them. Executive producer Andy Bowers has been feasting on a steady diet of breaking balls, which is also the characteristic of a fryer's roast. The gist, we're a first ball, fastball, furball, ball, foosball hitter. It's a real niche skill, one for which no sport yet exists to exploit. Umperu am Peru, do Peru, de Peru, and thanks for listening.